Hello and welcome to the Football Collective Podcast, a football research podcast for debate, discussion, highlighting members of the collective, their research and all things football within the world of academia. Welcome to Season 2, Episode 2 of the Football Collective Podcast. On this episode, we were kindly joined by Laura Finnegan, a sports lecturer and PhD candidate to discuss her research on relative age effect and what impact geography has on the development of youth players. Football was always the, the game that I had a passion for. Like most people, I was socialised into it from a young age through a parent. Used to sit behind the goals um, and watch my father being a goalie. He's a good amateur level keeper. I went on to play that position myself for a while. So... I was lucky enough to secure a lecturing job without a PhD a few years ago, but the expectation was always there that I would go down the PhD route. So for the last six, probably pushing seven years, I've been doing a part-time PhD on talent development in Irish football. Laura, can you tell us a little bit about your PhD that you're currently undertaking at Liverpool John Moore's? Yeah, well, I, I think the original idea of it was sparked after the Euros in 2012. Like a lot of Irish people, I, I trudged out of Poznan after a few disappointing results. And I just thought, right, well, if I'm going to do a PhD, I'm going to make sure that it's in an area that I absolutely love. That was something that was always going to be key for me. And I decided probably idealistically at the time that I was going to try and affect change. So that's why I picked this particular topic. The title of it is Organisational Structure and Practice of Talent Development Practices in, in Irish Football. So I suppose it, underpinned by Bronfen Brower's ecological approach and, and looking at the various macro down to micro factors that influence development. So for my sins, I, I have three very separate types of studies. It's a mixed methods approach. The first piece looked at looked quantitatively at the talent development pathways in Irish football primarily at the Emerging Talent Programme which was the Football Association of Ireland's primary development mechanism so there's a database of about 2,000 boys there that I analysed which was great it allowed me just to get an objective overview of the pathway so there was a few things that I was able to do there I was able to have a look at relative age effect within the group i was able to have a look at i suppose the influence of underage success and relative age i was able to look at a place of birth effect and interestingly i was able to look at player movement within the country as well there hasn't been a lot of research done on internal player movement so it it opened up a lot of doors in that aspect in terms of player movement then is it familiar practice to travel quite a way to uh, training and to play in different leagues it is. There is a very strong league in Dublin, one of the leagues in Dublin. It's one of the largest schoolboy leagues in, in Europe, and it's called the Dublin District Schoolboy League. And traditionally, the pattern of development would have been that you show a level of prominence in your local schoolboy league, and then you move to the DDSL. I've applied um, the, the world systems theory on that almost, and it's almost that, that acts as a semi-periphery because the ultimate destination is generally... UK academies so they're moving from the rural leagues to Dublin and then the destination to be the UK academies the structures have changed a little bit now there's been an introduction of underage 
League of Ireland teams and, and leagues across the country. So they are trying to develop more of a rural spread. But that that move towards Dublin uh, was certainly prominent. And almost it, it follows a pattern. There's there's almost a double layer. As you move out west, you're, you're more likely to migrate to Dublin. Obviously, there's facilitative networks and, and, and pathways there. Parents are able to drive you there. And that lessens as you move across the country. So I think it was really important that the pathways now have opened up to allow people to develop all over the country and not just centralised in Dublin. With a lot of players travelling across Europe and over the the Irish Sea to the UK, I bet that's quite hard for the ETP to develop a culture. Yeah, the FAI had a number of league centres dotted around the country. There was 12, 13 league centres around the country, with the objective being that boys could develop in their local community, perhaps without needing to make that step to the DDSL. It's interesting. Um, we looked at population data, and I think it goes to show as well the benefit of an evidence-based approach. The FEI would have come under criticism for actually having two of those centres in Dublin, but when we compare them to the population that's feeding into those centres, it probably warrants three or four in comparison to some of the other rural locations. So it really asks questions about, well, what are the priorities for football associations? Are they putting these development centres in areas of population need or is it ge geography, which is the, the primary focus there, particularly when there isn't a lot of money? So if we consider a shift away from the traditional uh, move to Dublin from a human geography perspective, which parts of Ireland have benefited the most from this change? I think definitely um, west and, and kind of southwest and the south, the ones that wouldn't have had access to the DDSL. There, the second part of my study was a stakeholder analysis where I talked to the strategic stakeholders within youth football. So that was the FAI, it was the, the schoolboys football association, junior football, all of these different bodies that have a pull and an influence on the structure of football. Um, and the reality was that the, the move to the DDSL created a lot of friction within these stakeholders. There was a lot of animosity and, and traditional um, patterns of animosity, I suppose. Players are, are a power resource. When we talk about power balance, really, the players were the key resource. So when leagues were losing their key resources, a certain amount of animosity was, was building up. So definitely elsewhere in the country, those that wouldn't have been able to move to the DDSL have benefited the leagues aren't perfect absolutely not there there are issues i suppose uh, this year it they started at under 13 so there are a lot of development kind of issues with that it, it begs the question of is it too young for a national league there are a couple of other issues like they're only every two years so it's actually really difficult and i suppose this goes back to the relative age effect uh, point as well but it's very difficult for that maybe smaller or more immature 12 year old to make that jump when he's finished under 13s because it's that two year age band so that's quite tricky another issue with the underage leagues is that it stops at under 19 so essentially there is nothing from under 19 to senior so that's another kind of black hole in the development pathway too can you tell us a little bit more about the relative age effect and how that affects um, ireland especially 
Yeah, um, for, for those that aren't familiar with it, it's a preference for selecting athletes born earlier in the age band, generally due to in, enhanced maturational factors that can be, I suppose, physical is the most commonly known one, but it's, it's social and it's cognitive maturity as well. This was really interesting for me um, because from an academic perspective, it's a really well established phenomenon. You know, it's been researched since the early 80s made famous i suppose in in terms of of the the popular culture literature by gladwell in outliers in 2008 but it's been the piece that's really been taken on board by coaches and it's the bit that administrators really want to hear more about so i think almost perhaps in academia we're we're failing to bridge that gap a little bit and people are doing really good work about um trying to come up with practical strategies to try and reduce it but so for example um i also did a study on the euros there the under 17 euros and they were actually held in ireland there during the summer and really interestingly out of the 344 players that were represented by the squads in the elite qualifying 48 percent of those were born in quarter one and six percent at the end of the year so essentially 47 percent born in january february march and only six percent born in October, November and December. That was reflected by was 54 born in January and three born in December. For those that aren't familiar as well, there's a blog post that you did for the collective website discussing the choice that some players get um, almost forced upon with to choose between sports like football and your more traditional Gaelic sports like hurling and Gaelic football. Um, can you just tell us a little bit more about that? It is a challenge, yes. Um, there are strongholds, GA strongholds in terms of culture. One of my studies for the PhD was a longitudinal study, and that's really where that one came to the fore for me. So that involved following five boys that were on the Irish under 15 squad when I started out uh, for a period of five years. So I suppose I saw firsthand their struggle with the cultural aspect of the GAA and how important that is to communities and because it's a very different specimen you can only represent your local club you represent your county and it means a lot to do that and there definitely is more of a community aspect to the GAA than there is soccer or football so definitely the, the lure or the pull of the GAA is something that impacts player development here Definitely the, the the lack of coherency in structures. The way it works here at the minute is that traditionally the, uh, I suppose, a, a subunit of the Football Association of Ireland, which is called the, the Schoolboys Football Association, had control of anything that happened 16 and under. Um, but I suppose they, they perhaps neglected their remit in terms of player development for a large number of years. So the Football Association are, are starting to try and move into that space now they have rolled out a new player development plan but again there's this disconnect between organizations with responsibility for player development other issues include uh, i suppose the the lack of equality in terms of opportunities i've alluded to, to some already in terms of the real significant relative age effect there's also issues to do with place of birth and, and access to these development centers and the issues that we just don't have flexible pathways. So 
for example, you know, there's no room for boys to be able to play up or, or down if that individually suited his or her development. So those are some of the issues facing developing footballers, probably all over the world, but definitely here. Are there any key organisational structures in Ireland uh, that are maybe different to other European countries like your Germany's or your England's or Spain or Italy, for example, that have followed their same sort of structure for years? and have established themselves on the European stage? Well, I think what we've been lacking here for a number of years is that there there aren't enough pro clubs here. So there isn't the same professional academy structures. Many of the senior league teams here aren't professional. Some of them are, some of them are semi-professional. So there wasn't enough resources to sustain that underage development. So that's why it's been really key for the Football Association and for the governing bodies to step in and take control of that development when we don't have the professional clubs that will do that. Are players encouraged to go abroad to different academies or do the FAI prefer these players to stay at home and benefit the competition and the international structure? No, I think for many years there was the reality that they were going to get better schooled almost when they went away and the UK academies were seen as the the next step along the pyramid at, at 15 and 16. And the reality is that some of the larger clubs do see players moving across to the UK as being a a central part of their business model. That's how they survive in a city where there are so many clubs. It is essential for them to get a number across the water, as we'd say every year. A lot of the clubs have reciprocal relationships with UK clubs where the UK club would have, I suppose, first refusal on players. And what the club here would get in, in return would be to be able to send over a number of players of year a year. Now, whether they would be up to the standard, sometimes they are, sometimes they're not, but at least they are seen to be getting players over for trials, which makes them a more attractive proposition here. So if we just come back to your research for a second, obviously it's very interesting for those that are, um, have, a, have an interest in player development. But in terms of disseminating your research, have you come up against any challenges and how have you managed to disseminate it? Yeah, I remember when I, I published my first journal article, I remember it quite clearly. I, I almost sat back and I remember the anticipation because I was waiting for that engagement and that kind of further conversation around it. And that didn't come because the reality was that, look, it, it's academic currency for me, but uh, but it's behind a paywall and it's full of, of technical jargon, which was inaccessible to the target audience at times. So what I looked to do then was I started a research-based blog to try and help with that dissemination. It's talentdevelopmentinirishfootball.com. And I've broken it down just into bite-sized so what messages for coaches, parents, administrators, mainly using Twitter as the vehicle to promote that. What I, I suppose was lacking here in in this third level institution was a, a collective group. So I found organisations like the, the Football Collective really important to help that dissemination of research as well and to find even like-minded people. So that's been a really important part for me along the journey. Can you tell us a little bit more about the work that you've done with the UEFA Pro Licence? 
Yeah, well, I was involved in a, in a European research project and I was very fortunate to get to know a man called Robin Russell. He was his ex-English FA. He kindly asked me to speak at an international sports convention in Geneva that he was organising. And from there, I met various representatives from European FAs. And I've been really lucky this year. I've been over with the Italian FA in Rome and I was over with the Croatian coach education on their um, coach conference day as well. They've asked me to come back this December to deliver on their pro license. And so I'm, I'm really honoured to be asked to do that. But further to my, my earlier conversation, it's that area of biological maturity and that awareness and raising that awareness on, on what is the relative age effect because they would have see a lot of that there. So it's, it's wider conversations around that, that they're really, really interested in and exploring. So that's what I will be doing in December. Um, so I'm looking forward to that and it's, it's a fantastic opportunity for me. What do you think the future is for Irish football development, especially for youths um, in the next, let's say, five to ten years? I think it will be a prime time in five to ten years to take a look back at the new introduction of these leagues. As I said, they've been introduced in a phased basis over the last five years. So really it's too early to see Probably a failing in terms of the analysis has been uh, a lack of objective kind of performance indicator. So how do we know that they've worked? What what will it look like at the end in the five or 10 year space to know that these new development pathways have had had a positive impact on development? So I think that's really important. And funding, I think if the FAI can get through its current struggles in terms of a, a new board, a new CAO, I think then we really have to talk about investment into the future, which is our talent, our, our young talent. Just one final question for you, Laura, is what's the next step for you in your academic career and what sort of impact do you hope that your research can have for football in, in Ireland? Oh, next step is hopefully finish the PhD by the end of the year. That's my that's my plan. Someone asked me recently, um, did I want to finish it at all? And I actually had to think twice about that because it's been such an enjoyable journey. It's been long. There's been two maternity leaves in the middle of it as well. But it's been it's been incredibly rewarding. I haven't said no to any opportunities that have have come up, and that's probably extended the lifespan of the project. But it gave me to the flexibility to include this lengthy longitudinal study, which I think has been really really important. I've developed a research centre in Waterford Institute of Technology, a football research centre, and I spoke about the Croatian FA. We're now their research partners. And we've developed links with clubs both here in Ireland and in the UK as well. So I hope to just build that network of, of people that are interested in this type of research. So please do contact me if you are. Um, so I hope to expand that and, and see where that goes. Thank you for your time, Laura. It's been great having you on the podcast. Thank you very much.